The book of Ruth opens with an ironic twist. There's a woman named Naomi, and her husbands and sons, they must leave Bethlehem. Now, the name Bethlehem literally means city of food, Bethlehem, city of food. They have to leave Bethlehem because of an extreme famine. And they travel to Moab, which is occupied by their enemies, the Moabites. So they had a choice. They could either face starvation in Bethlehem or they could go into the land as refugees. And so they venture into Moab. For 10 years, they live there and they settle in. And Naomi's sons take Moabites for wives. Unfortunately, tragic, tragedy strikes again when all three men die. But when Naomi learns once again that the harvest is plentiful in Bethlehem, she decides to go back because a woman, no matter where she is in the ancient Near East, cannot live alone. So our story for today picks up on the road between Moab and Bethlehem. It's kind of a no man's land, and this is where the women have a struggle. So listen for God's presence in this book and listen for what God is doing in this story as I read from the first chapter of Ruth. Then Naomi started to return with her daughter-in-laws from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughter-in-laws, and then they went back on their way to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and me. The Lord grant that you might find security, each of you, in the house of your husband. And then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. They said to her, No, we will not turn back. We will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my wombs that might become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And even if I thought there were hope for me, even if I should have a husband and bear sons, would you wait? Would you refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, go. It has been far more bitter for me than for you, because the, land, the, the hand of the Lord has turned against me. Then they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people your God, my God. May the Lord do thus and so to me, and more as well, if even death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Please pray with me. Dear God, your word has been proclaimed through the ages as a balm, as discipline, and as a reminder of who we are and whose we are. Remind us that we are always yours. Give us grace to hear your word today that in hearing we may believe and in believing walk in the way that Christ taught. Amen. Many of you know I had a former career and when I would move to a couple of different cities in the southeast because that was part of the promotion plan is you had to move in the southeast. 
One of the first questions always from my clients would be, where are you from? Despite a southern accent that I'd acquired in college, my unusual German maiden last name indicated that I was not native to that land. So where you're from was asked as if kind of asking, now who's your daddy? It's a sly way of wondering, can I trust you? Perhaps you too have experienced this from travels or from moving to different parts of the country. Family of origin is thought to fix one's identities and one's loyalties. You did not abdicate these easily, nor could you shed them in the face of others who felt they were essential to understanding who you are. Name, hometown, ethnicity are the very foundations of our identity. They either invite relationships or they serve as red flags saying, uh-uh, not going there. There are three particular books within Hebrew scriptures that address what I would call the outsider. And they address the outsider during the rebuilding of the Israelite kingdom after the Babylonian exile. The books are Ezra, or pardon me, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Ruth. They address identity, loyalty, and worthiness. The prophetic books, Ezra and Nehemiah, specify plans to rebuild the temple. They outline the worship rituals to follow and details and details and details of how to make Jewish culture and their city great again. They ban foreign marriages, they demand purging the city of outsiders, and they advocate restoring purity within the ethnic bloodline. Now, we don't read much from the archaic prophecy of Ezra or Nehemiah. They also didn't work so well. But we do read the story of Ruth. It's often read at weddings when two families are joining together in a covenant and a sacred bonds. And we read Ruth to reaffirm God's love revealed in our life, both then and now. This simple novella is more than just a charming story. And for those of you that had listened to Rabbi Evan Moffick when he was here about a month ago in a class entitled The Jewishness of Jesus, he shed some light on understanding why the message of Ruth is embedded in a story and not a prophetic book. And here's his explanation. Once upon a time, a man named Truth walked around town. He looked down and out, people ignored him, they turned away, and he felt frustrated. Then he saw his friend's story. Story dressed beautifully, rich, luxurious clothes, a top hat and scarf. Everyone came up to Story. They asked him questions and they listened to his answers. He seemed to know just what to say to every person. Truth then went up to Story and started complaining to him. Why doesn't anybody listen to me, he asked. What I have to say is important. And Story answered, the problem isn't with you, dear Truth, it's with your appearance. If you would take time to dress as I do, people would listen to you. Truth understood. From then, he started to dress like Story, and people started to listen to him, even when they didn't like what truth he had to say. They listened and they understood. The best teachers know that truth tastes best with Story, and they know that stories reveal the deepest hidden truths. Jewish tradition is filled with storytellers. Indeed, a Jewish proverb teaches that God created the world because God loves stories. Rabbi Moffat concludes with, stories fill us with wonder and truth. 
The life-giving message of Ruth told against religious and political authorities, told against them. It was so risky, it needed to be told in a story. So 10 years ago, Naomi and her husband and her two sons fled their homeland and walked into a village of Moab as refugees. By marrying one of her sons, Ruth became a daughter to Naomi and joined the family. She would have cooked meals and washed clothes and fetched water. For 10 years, she lived with them. Now, very likely, Ruth was a young teen when she became part of this family, and so she essentially grew up in their home with Naomi as her mother, and it was Naomi who raised her into womanhood. After the death of their husbands, they are grieving lost loves, lost homes, and facing an unknown future. So now in a place, not Moab, not Bethlehem, in a liminal space on the road, Ruth argues with Naomi three times to remain with her. I'm going to remain with you wherever you go. Ruth will not accept the rules that she is of a particular kind and must stay in her hometown of Moab. She trusts more in a love that grew from years of working together, of living together, of loving together. When she married, she made a vow to her husband and now offers it again to Naomi. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. In this covenant, it's people who come first with God always as the foundation. But Naomi is afraid. Quite candidly, Ruth's otherness is a burden. How can she bring this immigrant into her hometown? Her son had married the enemy, and she had lived in a culturally mixed home for far too long. It would be less risky for Naomi to not have such a visceral presence of an outsider when she too is trying to rebuild in a place. The short novella portrays Ruth's transformation from the Moabite and the outsider to one who is respected for her devotion to Naomi and her willingness to live side by side with these people. But the transformation portrayed in the story is not within Ruth. The transformation is among the people and it unfolds through the identity that they assign to her. Slowly, by living into the promise that she is true and loyal, just as her word, she is no longer seen as the Moabite, but is eventually called daughter and called beloved daughter and wins the heart of a new husband. Ruth bears a child and is revered throughout Judeo-Christian history as the grandmother of a shepherd boy who becomes the great King David. It is the King David who rebuilds the kingdom of Israel. Through her love of people, Ruth became the unlikely mother who was able to redeem, able to rebuild. As a foreigner, as a widow, as an enemy, and as a Moabite, Ruth is the improbable character to have a book written after her, and it is her name that shines brightly in Jesus' genealogy that we retell through the Gospel of Matthew. Now, I will admit it's a testament to the ancient Greeks to boldly put her name and not Naomi's name in this title. Foreigners and fear of the other has dominated our lives since early history. Ezra and Nehemiah wanted to build walls and purge the Israelites of foreign wives. The outsider and the other threatened identity, the sense of security, of jobs, and fulfilling their dreams. We hear this again today, loud on the loudspeakers in our political stage, both domestically and abroad. We can't seem to escape it. 
The fault is always in the other. Within our country, the elections have revealed just how much hurt and pain exists because we live in a culture that seems to tell us that we're supposed to wear a face that says, I'm just fine. No, I'm better than fine. I'm succeeding, even if we're not. And it seems to represent failure to admit that the dream life has eluded us. But we are learning that the facade is, in fact, crumbling. Now, the former consultant geek in me still loves some numbers, so bear with me on this. Pew Research presents, and these are things you probably know. 75% of Trump voters feel that life has gotten worse. Bernie Sanders has struck a chord amongst Democratic voters who feel disenfranchised and cannot participate in the economic game. Younger generations pervasively distrust institutions. And all of this is amidst the most racially and ethnically diverse election that we have ever seen in this country. Compounding the attitudes pollsters found are the worries that we should face about our culture. The suicide rate is up across all age groups. Our multitasking has finally been outed as unproductive, and it inhibits our ability to focus on what we're doing and to focus on each other. Communication styles and social media and texting, however easy and efficient and fun, have led to less intimacy between people and anonymous bullying. And the last one was surprising. 47% of all Americans would be unable to cover a $400 emergency expense without selling or borrowing something, or they couldn't come up with the money at all. That last one stung since I recall a similar statistic during the financial debacle in 2001, 15 years ago when I was still in consumer banking, and I thought back then, surely, the cycles of devastation of bust and boom would have changed behaviors. But I commend you a touching Atlantic Monthly article by Neil Garbler, who writes of, I quote, the secret shame of the middle class. Now, I imagine there are more of us sitting here in these pews who are part of that 47% than we'd like to admit. It's true. Some of us are living on the edge in so many ways, either financially or culturally or in relationships. And then there are some of us that are clueless about this. So we have to ask, have we lost track of how to build enduring relationships based upon who we really are and not who we're pretending to be or trying to be or think we're supposed to be? In the divides, we may see the others as the enemy, threatening our lifestyle, our freedoms, our economic stability. But there are others that see us as the enemy, the ones living the good life and not willing to listen or acknowledge the pain of others. In the early 20th century, there is a theologian by the name of H. Richard Niebuhr who taught at Yale Divinity School and wrote extensively on faith in Western culture. Now, he had a brother, Reinhold Niebuhr, who had a lot more notoriety, wrote more prolifically, and somewhat overshadowed him, but I'm a fan of H. Richard. He has a thesis on faith and devotion that rings true about the breaking apart that we're experiencing. He observes in Western culture, we more often live in a world of what he calls henotheism. We acknowledge one God as supreme in religion and faith practices, but we live in ways that honor myriad other gods. For example, we may worship as a Christian, but we're deeply devoted to our political party, our patriotic values, or we practice uncompromising commitments to sports teams or careers in ways that compete with our faith.
That's henotheism. At the time he was writing in the early 1940s, he was influenced by German National Socialism and Italian Fascism in highly Christian countries, but were being tainted by this nationalist pride. And Niebuhr goes on to argue that even henotheism dissolves in times of upheaval when no one God, there is no God to offer the solace or deserve such primacy of devotion. And he writes, bear with me on this. The natural perennial of faith in men, in the faith of men in the society in which they were born, whose authority governed them, whose laws protected them, whose language gave them their logic, which nurtured them in life and by remembrance maintains them in death, for whose sake they reared their children, labored and fought, evermore comes to a cheerless end among large and little conscious and unconscious treasons or among natural and political disasters. It is in such a situation that man's other faith, polytheism, never wholly suppressed, even in the midst of this, is likely to become dominant. Now, when Niebuhr refers to polytheism, he is not referring to an ancient worship of Zeus and Venus, but he is explicitly naming polytheism as splintered devotion, of a sense that no one is in charge, and our values are always being competed with one another, and we have the despair that sets in. Polytheism, some might call it atheism, some might say just giving up in the face of I don't know what to do next. But Niebuhr doesn't leave us in despair. Instead, he lifts us up into what he calls and reminds us of radical monotheism. Radical monotheism understand that God loves and values all creation without any borders or walls or constraints that we choose to create or value. Radical monotheism understands that God is sovereign over all, and we are not. Niebuhr acknowledges that this is tough, and it's rarely maintained. But he also lets us know that we keep trying because God never gives up on us. And God is always a God of new beginnings. Enough of academia. Truth is told in a story. So let me tell you the story about a woman named Ruth, of immeasurable grace, who was able to see new possibilities by reaching across to her mother and saying to her, I love you, and I will take care of you till death and beyond. Ruth and Naomi loved the same men, and by loving, loved the same God. Ruth is a story, and it's a potent critique against Ezra and Nehemiah, who sought purification and exclusion during the campaign to make Israel great again. Ruth showcases the truth that God's dominion is not in a place, God's dominion is not in an ethnic lineage, customs, or even a religion. What is sacred are relationships. Through the bonds we hold with our mothers or with our daughters, we have perhaps tasted this sacredness. In this story, God tears down some long-defended walls to prove again and again that it's relationships that are sacred, blessed, and pleasing to God. Ruth was not afraid to become something new, and in the process, she ends barrenness and gives everyone new life. So, of course, Jesus' lineage celebrates the great-great-great-grandmother who lived with a radical devotion to God. 
We may not be on the road between Moab and Bethlehem, but we are always asked to decide about our path ahead. We have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave us the great command to love. And as individuals, we can choose to see new possibilities, and we can choose to risk into new relationships, particularly with the other, with the enemy. And we can choose to believe in one God, and with this confidence, build sacred bonds. Amen.